So, we have already spoken yesterday and today about how our self is something fabricated and that there is basically a process of self-construction going on in our mind, on and on and on, basically. It's really the mind endlessly spinning the story of myself. And the Buddha spoke about several ways how such self-fabrication happens, different ways through which this mind that is fundamentally open and, and free can contract and create boundaries, create distinctions that set one part apart from the rest that is then defined as being myself. This is who I am. So tonight I'd like to speak about one of those mechanisms, so to say, how this I-making or me-making can take place, which is our tendency to compare ourselves, to measure ourselves. Another way of creating a self would be by, for instance, appropriating certain aspects of our experience as being me or mine, or by clinging to views of an eternal self. But for now, I'd like to focus on this comparing tendency, on conceit, as it is called, mana in Pali. So this conceit of I am. And conceit refers to a deeply embedded and extremely tenacious pattern of seeing this self in terms of how it compares to others, being better than, worse than, or equal to others. So it's really this question, how am I doing compared to the others? How is my standing in my social group? Can I keep up with the others? It could be the conceit of feeling smarter than others or richer or the conceit of being unworthy or clumsy or simply same as everybody else. Whatever form it takes, always there is this very distinct awareness of some self in the middle of this experience, of being someone. And, you know, now we cannot go into discussing all your self-definitions, but Kirsten invited you this morning to make a list of your self-definitions. And those of you who have done it, actually, I would be actually curious just to hear, you know, whether some of those self-definitions fall into this category of comparing, of having some kind of measurement of being good at something or worse than other people. And sometimes conceit can, as a topic, be a little bit humbling or a little bit insulting. But I think it's a really great topic because it is something that is very universal. It's something we all can easily detect and observe in our experience. And maybe also learn to laugh about it, to find some humor in it. 
this is not something that is extremely esoteric or only accessible to those who have attained very refined meditative states, but it is something that is going on for all of us, no matter how advanced we are in our practice, except for the fully awakened ones. So actually the Buddha declared conceit, mana, to be the last of the ten fetters that is overcome before one attains awakening. So it's the very, very last obstacle that prevents the mind from letting go into total freedom. So compared to greed or aversion, conceit is much, much harder to let go. And if you see how difficult it is to let go of those, you get an idea how much more difficult it is to truly become free from conceit. It's a hard one, really. So we need to be patient with ourselves. And yet it is very illuminating if we start to see conceit when it arises in our mind. It's so freeing to recognize it and to learn to see through it and not to be just caught in it. And when we truly understand conceit, we can also make use of conceit in a skillful way. I will come back to this later. But let's now first explore conceit and how it manifests. So a quote from the Dhamma Sanghani where it says, What is the fetter of conceit? Conceit at the thought, I am the better person. Conceit at the thought, I am as good as they. Conceit at the thought, I am lowly. All such sort of conceit, overweening conceitedness, loftiness, haughtiness, flaunting a flag, assumption, desire of the heart for self-advertisement. This is called conceit. So different, you know, from the everyday understanding of self-conceit as the vain, exaggerated sense of being superior to others. In the early Buddhist teachings, conceit is being used for all three comparisons, superiority, inferiority, and equality. And this makes sense because in all three comparisons, we are in some way measuring and comparing ourselves with others and creating a sense of self on the basis of this measurement, being better than, worse than, or equal to others. And no matter how we score, some sort of self-confirmation is happening almost like saying, I can measure myself, therefore I am. I must be existing. This confirms myself. Even if I see myself inferior to another person, at least I am. I can somehow define myself. So with superiority, you know, that's familiar maybe, we have this sense that we're somehow better than others, above others, and we look down to others. 
And this sense that we somehow outrival others, we are higher, more worthy, more competent, more deserving than others, or whatever. And this perceived superiority can manifest in very blatant ways at times, and sometimes more subtle. Maybe it's just feeling smug. It may show in the way we expect the world and other people to treat us in a certain way, in the way we might feel entitled at times to certain privileges or respect from others. And then with inferiority, on the other hand, of course, we feel less worthy, less knowledgeable, less beautiful or anything than others. It is this very, very painful feeling of just not being as good or competent or lovable as others, being less privileged, less important, less worthy. And so we act in ways trying not to be too demanding, unassuming, self-effacing. With inferiority conceit, we feel that we don't really have the right to vouch for ourselves, to express our needs and opinions, because they simply seem less important. Who am I to ask another person a favor? And then we have equality conceit, which is an interesting one and maybe surprising because we might wonder what's so problematic about seeing ourselves as same as others. Isn't this one of the ideals of democracy that all citizens should have the same rights? Absolutely, absolutely. There is nothing problematic about this. The problem is when we use the equality conceit as a way of self-confirmation, who I am, what I am. I am same like these other persons. So there is still this self-definition that comes from the measurement. It can feel very reassuring to think that I'm same as others. I am not different. And so I belong to this group. We are all same. And of course, then there are those who don't belong, who are not the same. Equality conceit can also manifest, that's just an example, in views and opinions that in a group or in a society, no one deserves preferential treatment. You know, this view that Everyone should just be treated exactly the same way. A a view that blends out the fact that sometimes fairness and justice mean we need to take into account the differences between people. And we need to make sure that people, even with disabilities or other disadvantages, get a fair chance to go to schools or to get a job. So, you know, that's a very simplistic way of thinking. And it's basically a manifestation of this equality conceit. We don't care about the differences. We just treat everybody in the same way. Or another manifestation of equality conceit could be the view that all human beings are basically selfish. 
you know, there are no differences. And I, I have noticed that, you know, when I used to teach psychology, moral psychology, and then having very engaged discussions in the seminaries, seminars with students, and there were always some students, some people who had the opinion that there are people who act in truly altruistic ways. And there were always some people who said, no, basically all humans are just driven by selfish motivations. So making such very sweeping generalizations across all human beings and just not taking into account the differences, that's also conceit equality conceit. No one is better. We are all bad. So no matter really whether we feel superior at times, inferior or equal, the, the relevant point here is the sense of self that is created in this moment. And now we could think about different of ways of comparing, you know, comparing with regard to what. And basically, one can have conceit with regard to almost everything. Um, but traditionally, there are certain forms of conceit that we can find in the, in the canonical texts. And I would just like to look at some of them. And beginning with conceit of birth. So that's a big one. Conceit of birth, for example, conceit based on our gender, our ethnical background, our home country. Maybe we are proud about our ancestry, having been born into a noble dynasty or into a rich family. And even if we weren't born from a very distinguished family or class or race, there are other possibilities of being proud about our background, our ancestors, our family lineage. Some people like to, to study their family tree or nowadays they test their genetic ancestry. I don't know whether some of you have done that. And this too can lead to a form of birth conceit. We believe that somehow the genes tell us who we are and we get a sense of pride from this. Yeah. Well, actually, sometimes it goes the wrong way. I have heard of people who did such genetic testing, which then totally shattered their assumptions about their background, but that's a different story. And of course... In the same way, we can also have an inferiority conceit due to our family origin, feel shameful about our background. There is this story about Ananda. He was Buddha's attendant and very close friend and cousin. For many, many years, he, he really was very close to the Buddha. And once he met a girl named Pakati, at the well. Will you give me a drink of water, please? Ananda asked her. The girl blushed and looked at the ground. Sir, I'm not worthy to do such a thing. I am of the lowest caste. 
I cannot give water to a monk. I might contaminate you. Ananda shook his head and said, I did not ask you to tell me your case. I asked you for a drink of water. How often do we react similarly? That we perceive a situation in terms of me, of who I think I am, rather than just seeing the situation for what it is. When invited to do something, maybe to speak in a group or so, we shy back and think, oh no, I'm not the right person for this. Conceit of birth can have a great impact on how people move through the world. With superiority, of course, there is a certain confidence and an unconscious and unquestioned sense of entitlement when we act and speak from this place of privileged birth. A man once told me a tiny anecdote where he, coming from a poor family, was staying at a very posh hotel together with a woman from a very rich family. And they were having a meal there, enjoying a very rich and opulent buffet with a huge variety of dishes. But for some reasons, on this huge buffet, there were no apples. And this woman wanted an apple. So without hesitation, she called the waiter and asked him to bring her an apple. And he rushed to fulfill her wish, bringing the apple on a silver tray. And my friend was just so struck by the way this woman just took it for granted that she could order whatever she liked in this moment, even if it was not a very extravagant wish. While for him, it never would have crossed his mind to ask for him for something, given that there was plenty of food. So it was really a very different attitude in the two of them. For her, it was just her natural right to order something that was not offered on the buffet. And for him, actually, he didn't really feel very comfortable in this environment. He didn't feel that he fit in. Okay, so this is, in a way, you could say harmless, still, even amusing. But we all know that conceit of birth also manifests in truly frightening ways in the form of racism, sexism, and other isms leading to discrimination, injustice, and at times to extreme cruelty, violence, even murder. This is the horrific, ugly side of conceit when it manifests in such very destructive behavior from the Nazis to the contemporary far-right and nationalist movements from ancient patriarchal systems and the long history of misogyny to modern forms of hatred and oppression against women such ideologies make value judgments about humans based on their biological nature or descent. And this is conceit of birth. You are your biology, you could say, for better or for worse. So in this view, it doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter how kind you are, how creative you are, whether you treat other people respectfully or not. Only your birth, 
your race, your gender, or whatever you happen to be born with. And, you know, unfortunately, this is not limited to, you know, politics and the worldly fields, but we can also find the same processes happening in the Dharma in the form of androcentrism and gender discrimination when women are being denied the right to become fully ordained nuns, for instance, or to take on leadership roles or are being devalued as somehow being contaminated or not able to attain full liberation. Bikwanalayo has just written a new book on conceit within Buddhism and he brilliantly analyzes how gender discrimination evolved historically and how the tradition found all kinds of bizarre arguments to justify the mistreatment of women. We find elaborate arguments and justifications for what are essentially just manifestations of conceit. So based on his studies, he writes, Although misogynist statements are at times attributed to the Buddha, they are best set aside as not being accurate records of his attitude toward and assessment of women. Instead, they must be reflecting the influence of views held in the ancient Indian setting among those involved in transmitting the text. And in another place, he writes, out of the different manifestations of superiority conceit that I have selected for study in this book, this is perhaps the one with the most detrimental repercussions for the Buddhist traditions as a whole. Just think of it. The potential of half of the Buddhist population is being stifled by obstructing women from taking leadership roles. This is such a waste of human resources and a cause of much unnecessary pain. I think that the reason why conceit of birth can be quite alluring is because it seems to provide us with a relatively stable foundation for a sense of self. You know, this is something no one can take away from me my privileged origins, my past, even in a world that is undergoing huge changes and that is so uncertain. So especially in times of a lot of outer change, of uncertainty, we may understandably feel drawn to strengthen the sense of self by going back to our roots, our genes, our ancestry. And, you know, I also want to say, of course, this doesn't mean that feeling connected to our ancestry or having an identity in terms of gender or sexual orientation or whatever in itself is not problematic as long as we can hold it lightly, just knowing that these are very relative labels or categories. It is psychologically healthy to acknowledge this relative being in its particularity. But can we find a way to have a healthy appreciation for our origins without becoming conceited 
of them. The Buddha was very clear that conceit of birth is unfounded, that this is a form of delusion and that one shouldn't judge people on this basis. So he said about the Brahmans of his time, you know, who considered themselves to be the highest, the most noble of all the castes. Not by birth is one an outcast. Not by birth is one a Brahman. By deed, one becomes an outcast. By deed, one becomes a Brahman. So there is nothing whatsoever that is inherently good or bad about being of a certain descent, of nationality, race, gender, or whatever. All these characteristics are extremely superficial. What really counts from a Dharma point of view are the behavior, the actions, the mental qualities of a being. And this means we are not absolved from the responsibility that we have to make our own efforts to live our life in a wholesome way. Okay, then we can have conceit about our learning or knowledge or wisdom. That's another form of conceit. Doesn't it feel so good to be the one who knows, to be the one who has the right answers and who is able to share their wisdom with others, to be the one who knows many historical dates or the correct Pali words or who knows how to solve a computer problem. Knowledge, smartness, wisdom can so easily lead to snobbery and arrogance. I am the one who knows. And of course, woven into this self-consciousness of our own smartness, we might have also a somewhat condescending attitude towards those who are just not as intelligent or learned as we. And many teachers and Dharma teachers are not exempt from this, but also many experts in whatever field have this form of conceit. We all like to have some knowledge that we can just, you know, draw out, that we can show off. To know can be a source of safety. And it's also nice to be able to share this knowledge with others, this advice. Just try to be mindful, be kind to yourself, and so on. Sometimes it's really kind of amusing to listen in conversations when this arises, you know, people trying to show their knowledge. Did you know that X, Y? Have you read so-and-so book? Or we like not only the knowledge, but also to have a document, you know, that proves our knowledge in forms of our titles and degrees that we put on the wall. So it's just interesting and also good to bring some sense of humor when we notice this sense of puffing ourselves up, of feeling a little bit self-important. Or if we feel more the, the opposite, the inferiority, also good to notice. Why is there this sense of, I have nothing to say, yeah? 
So then we have another form of superiority conceit that could be based on our appearance, physical beauty. That is also a central topic in modern culture, of course, you know, with our emphasis on self-presentation and self-promotion. So there can be a sense of superiority based on physical beauty of finding ourselves handsome, attractive. So we might feel satisfied or not so satisfied when we look into a mirror or we are aware how other people notice our appearance, how it draws the attention or how it doesn't. And of course, this is not just a modern phenomenon, but this has always been a topic, you know. If you think of those fairy tales and myths like Narcissus, who became totally intoxicated with his own beauty to his own demise. But maybe today it's taking some extreme forms when we see all the people making their selfies and putting up all the photos in social media. But, you know, what a waste of energy, if you think of it, because physical beauty, we know it, doesn't stay for a very long time. It withers away every day, every moment that we grow older. Of course, we try to fight this decline. We spend a lot of money and time and energy to somehow keep our physical attractiveness. And really wasting resources for this. It's a huge multi-billion industry living from all the creams and pills and treatments that our society uses just to fight this enemy of old age, sickness and death. And there is a real poignancy in knowing that this is a fight that we are necessarily going to lose. No chance. Actually, there is a story about a famous nun at the time of the Buddha, Venerable Kema, who attained full awakening by having a profound insight into this impermanent nature of beauty. Being the incredibly beautiful queen of King Bimbisara, she encountered the Buddha. Actually, she was tricked into meeting the Buddha by her husband. And it is said that the Buddha used his psychic power to make an image of a beautiful young woman appear in her mind, a woman who was even more beautiful than herself. And then he made the beautiful woman's body gradually age and change little by little from young age to middle age and gradually changing to old age. At seeing that sight, the queen grew dispassionate, seeing the beauty disappearing, seeing the skin of this woman becoming all wrinkled, her hair gray, her teeth broken and then falling over in front of her. And Queen Kema, it is said, gazed and her mind became peaceful and supremely concentrated. 
she saw the form of that woman since the beginning when it was surpassingly beautiful up until it turned into an old woman falling over. She saw impermanence and she understood deeply that also her own bodily form was uncertain and changing. And this profound insight into impermanence allowed her to see the pointlessness of clinging to beauty and to completely let go of any attachment. Right there and then, Kema attained full arhantship as a laywoman, which is actually very exceptional for the discourses. And after she had become fully awakened, she joined the Sangha of the monastics and she became one of the two foremost amongst the nuns. So seeing impermanence is really a very powerful tool if we want to overcome conceit of beauty. Actually, not just conceit of beauty, any conceit actually. Because really, whatever we use to puff ourselves up, to prove that we are important or significant, none of it will remain forever. None of it is a reliable foundation for our sense of self. And this is something we need to remind ourselves over and over, the impermanence of all things. Okay, so we've had conceit of birth, conceit of wisdom and knowledge, and conceit of beauty. There are many other forms of conceit, conceit of health, of youth, of wealth, of popularity, of morality, and so on. But one area that I'd like to mention still is conceit with regard to our spiritual practice. Because even there, this tendency can creep in. It could be that we feel conceited of being very mindful or having attained some insight or some level of concentration or of being a very compassionate and selfless person. And maybe you have noticed this tendency in your own mind at times, how we constantly compare ourselves to other practitioners, how we have our private judgments about others, you know, how they are doing and how we are doing in comparison to them. And of course, you know, that's one of the disadvantages of having an online retreat. We have less of this opportunity to compare ourselves. But in on-site retreats, there are plenty of opportunities to watch this comparison arise in our minds. Who can sit more quietly in the hall and who is always moving around? Who can sit longer and who is getting up very early, who can walk more slowly, and who is the one asking the really clever questions in the hall. So, I mean, maybe you are free from that, but I am very, very familiar with this tendency. Conceit can also arise with regard to the perceived progress in our practice, whether true or not. Now, finally, I got it, this insight, this level of concentration. 
And, you know, we shouldn't feel bad if we see these tendencies. As I've mentioned, conceit is there all along the way, even in very, very high stages of mind cultivation. This very subtle feeling of being better, more advanced than others, a subtle, a very, very subtle form of arrogance, of pride. The Buddha spoke of of even very advanced practitioners who can still have all sorts of conceits of their attainments. For instance, it says, you know, in a discourse, they were conceited of living in the wilderness or conceited of never lying down, a practice that is still being done in some places nowadays, conceited of eating only one meal a day or attaining some level of absorption. So just to quote one paragraph from this discourse, such a conceited mendicant thinks, I have attained the first absorption, unlike those other mendicants, and they glorify themselves and put others down on account of that. Yeah, so... This is a tough one huh, to really get free from this conceit. But it's good to notice it and to notice where it becomes an obstacle for further progress. Because such a conceit, of course, it keeps us locked in a certain self-view. I am the person who has attained this and this, you know, level, whatever. And what is also interesting to observe is how such a conceit can go together with certain expectations, how we would like others to treat us with due respect, of course. I can really see this at work when I notice a certain frustration. For instance, you know, when I'm with the adolescent daughters of my partners, of my partner who are not at all interested in dharma and meditation and then just feeling, oh, they are really not acknowledging my dharma practice and being a teacher. And so, and actually it's totally normal and okay, but it's when I'm clinging to this identity that there is a suffering, a disappointment that they are not more interested in meditation. Yeah. But really, we need to see and let go of such conceit whenever possible, not clinging to any understanding that might have indeed grown in us, not clinging to any level of maturity, not clinging to any meditative state or attainment. None of it is truly mine. It doesn't belong to me. And yet we keep doing it, of course. We identify, we like to build up a certain persona that we then present to the world. I, the calm, composed, kind, wise, spiritual person. But of course, this then also creates a pressure because we then need to somehow, at least to a certain degree, live up to this standard, isn't it? And you know, it can really create the pressure and even in very, very tiny forms. Just to give you a very trivial example, last winter I was staying in a cottage at IMS and one morning, early morning, 
I made my bed and somehow my alarm clock dropped down, making noise. And immediately the thought arose, I am supposed to be a meditation teacher. I shouldn't be making noise at this time. And this is silly. It's silly to bring in this identity in this moment, this conceit into this situation. But that is how the mind functions. We are so attached to this conceit. And then, of course, it starts to shape how we see situations and how we respond to them. And another problem, you know, between our cons- uh, with our conceits is when there is a dis- discrepancy between our conceited self-view and our actual behavior. Because there might be a tendency to just gloss over the discrepancy. Maybe we are tempted to simply deny our weaknesses or we try to find some rationalization. Like in all those cases of sexual abuse with, you know, also Buddhist teachers where the offenders or sometimes even their pupils try to rationalize very inappropriate behavior. Anyway, whatever conceit we might see arising, what we really want to see, what we want to pay attention to, is the suffering that arises from conceit, from mana. Because understanding the dukkha, the the suffering that comes from mana, helps the mind to let go of it. When it learns to discern oh, this is actually painful. This doesn't serve me. It's unwholesome. In the case of inferiority conceit, this is obvious, you know, the pain, the constriction, this very burning feeling when we feel inferior to others. The shame, because somehow we feel I'm just not you know, on the same level like the others. It's so painful. And it's not just painful in this moment, but we also tend to have like the projection. This is how I'm true, how I truly am and how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. So suffering is very obvious in the case of inferiority, but also superiority comes with suffering. Because superiority needs to be kept up. It requires a lot of maintenance to constantly prove and demonstrate and confirm that we are better. Because somewhere, somehow, we know that it is actually not so stable, not so reliable. Paul Fulton writes, The pleasure of feeling superior is always precarious, subject to being erased with one untoward interaction. Once this comparing mind arises, it threatens to negate any nourishment we may have gained from our accomplishments. Self-esteem is in constant renegotiation never a truly finished product immune from fluctuation. 
Yeah, it's really precarious, huh? It's not stable. We cannot rely on it. So there is always this fear looming in the back, the fear of being someday outmatched by someone else. And then the suffering that comes from being equal. Also, this needs to be kept up and confirmed because we depend on others that they acknowledge us as equal, that they acknowledge us as belonging to a certain group, being an accepted member. What if our group membership is being questioned when something threatens our membership in the group, our status as being equal, same? And you know, whatever conceit, all these concerns, all these fears that are related to conceit, they undermine us. They make us lose our ground, our alignment, our center, our vertical axis. We, we start to you know, twist in ways, trying to secure this conceit, but we lose touch with our deeper dimension, with what is truly worthwhile and valuable for us. So I think we, sh we should and we can understand that ultimately any attempt to define this self, to make it graspable, presentable is meaningless. It, it's not onward leading. Not only does it create a lot of suffering, but it's really meaningless in the face of impermanent, the impermanent nature of all things. So if we can really deepen this insight, really understanding the unfoundedness of those statements, this will counteract mana. You know, we are all aware that we have probably made such experiences how conceit can just be shattered by life experiences. For me, it was very, very impressive, maybe yeah, 11 years ago, when you know a long-term relationship broke up and it was not just the relationship it was also my place where i lived and it was my sangha everything was like falling apart in this moment because it was all connected to this relationship and i could really see this this fear that arose oh who am i if this is all falling away from me yeah so if we really understand the impermanence, we don't invest so much energy into this conceit because we know it's not reliable. So how can we practice? One thing, again, is seeing the impermanence. Another thing to practice around this topic of conceit doesn't mean we now don't acknowledge any differences between people or hierarchies also. Of course, we can distinguish between different people in terms of skills, in terms of age, personality patterns, just as we distinguish between different flowers, for instance. But we can learn to become more free around conceit. One thing um, that I found 
somehow sweet, you know, when I put together this talk, I came across a quote, a rule for monks, don't look into the other monks balls for finding fault. So that's a basic rule. Don't look into the other monks balls for finding fault. It means it's helpful if we can simply keep our attention to our own business, what we are doing, our own um, path, rather than squinting at what others are doing and comparing ourselves with them. So we really focus on what is actually relevant for us. And this will really help us not to be pulled into this comparing tendency. That is one thing, yes, really learning to stay focused with our own path, our own business, and not let the mind too much go into this comparing mode. Trusting that, you know, just by doing this, we are actually walking the path in the best way. The second interesting point, I think, is using conceit in a skillful way. And this actually comes from Ananda, who in the canon, in one place, told to a nun, it is by relying on conceit that conceit is to be abandoned. It is by relying on conceit that conceit is to be abandoned. So we can use conceit. It's not just about getting rid of it but we can use conceit in a skillful way. And what we mean by this is we can, for instance, hear about another person being further on the path and the thought arises, why am not, not I doing this? Why is this not me? So if, if we have this sense of, I too, I'm able to do the same thing as this practitioner who is more advanced than me. That can be a, a source of faith, of confidence. So this is a skillful use of conceit, to use it as a way of inspiring ourselves. We know it is a conceit, but at least we use it in a skillful way. And, you know, we are going to speak much more about this topic in the coming days. But uh, I just found it interesting that we find this already in the canon, actually. And ultimately, ultimately, freedom comes from dropping all the measurement scales, all the comparing. That's a verse from the Sutta Nipata. The sage do not grade themselves. Among equals, inferiors, or superiors, being at peace and with selfishness gone, they neither take up nor throw away. So the sage don't grade themselves. We just develop this inner peace that is not so concerned anymore about how we compare to others, about our social standing. We find freedom from this fear, from judgment. 
And I would like to close with a quote from Chuang Tzu. Forget the years. Forget distinctions. Leap into the boundless and make it your home. So I would like to invite you just to sit for a moment. Maybe you need to establish yourself in a posture, make yourself comfortable. Let the words fly away. And maybe there is still something resonating. Forget the years. Forget distinctions. Leap into the boundless and make it your home. suggest that we have just like a three or four minute break maybe you want to stretch a little bit drink something and we come back just for a very brief last sitting to close this day of practice together and we will close at quarter past right so just take a moment to refresh yourself a little bit and then we close the day together
Okay, so let's find our posture. Finding our alignment. And really coming into this presence. Because it's really through the practice that we transform this heart and mind from this willingness again and again wake up from confusion just wake up to this moment this body this breath this mind state
And as this day is coming to its end and it's getting darker or maybe it's already dark where you are and we are coming to the end also of this retreat day, our shared practice time. It's good and inspiring to really appreciate the fact that we have been practicing today, that we have spent this time in a wise and skillful way. So really having this sense of appreciation, which doesn't need to be conceited, just a natural appreciation and joy about the fact that this is this was time well spent. A very noble endeavor. to really explore this mind, this heart, to cultivate it, to develop wisdom and kindness, compassion. Also appreciation for our fellow yogis who are with us in this retreat. Appreciation, gratitude for all the conditions that have made this possible. And if you wish, you know, really sharing the merit of the goodness of this practice, of the fruits of this practice, dedicating it for your own well-being, that all of you may attain full liberation, the release of heart and mind. And that all beings everywhere may attain this freedom. May all beings experience the deepest peace. May this entire world be in peace.
So for those for whom it's high time to go to bed, please go and have a good rest. Those of you who still have some hours, please use the time. If you feel, you know, inspired, you have the energy to really practice. It's really worthwhile and our world needs it. It needs people who, who know how to remain calm and grounded. Yeah. Okay, take care. Have a good night and see you tomorrow at 7.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.